This is Collected Clan, Episode 10. also identify what's the real hunger underneath that stuff for something that's real, something that's true, something that's good, something that's sustainable, something that's communal. Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast about outstanding people I've met along the way. People with interesting stories, triumphs, and ideals. People who've made their mark in the world and in my life. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. I've met a lot of people over the years and many people come and go. But these people are the company that you keep. Everyday people just like you and me. In this episode, I talk with John J. Thompson. Though we met less than 10 years ago, John and I share a rather parallel life that was exciting to explore in this conversation about our shared Central Illinois roots. He also talks about signing his own adoption papers, how forgiveness is actually connected to understanding, the unique community that was Cornerstone Festival, his book called Jesus, Bread, and Chocolate, Crafting a Handmade Faith in a Mass Market World, and so much more. Big thank you to everyone who has subscribed and left a rating and review, like this one from Apple Podcasts user named Our First. I have been super intrigued lately by people's life stories and how the people we meet and situations we face impact our lives. Loved every episode so far. That pretty much sums up what this show is all about. Everyday people having a conversation, telling stories of their lives, and learning new things about each other. More than an interview, it's a conversation. It's two-sided, not just one. And in this social media age, when most people have resorted to talking at each other, this is an opportunity to talk with each other. Like this episode. So let's get started. Via Skype, join this conversation with musician and author John J. Thompson. So you and I have more of a parallel life than than you might know, uh, and the only yeah, reason the only reason I would know that is because I've heard more interviews of you because you have a little bit more of a, a notoriety, name recognition, celebrity than I do uh, in certain circles. So I've heard interviews of you, and um, <laughs> so I, I figured this would be this would be fun. Cool. Yeah, I'm curious where you're going with that. <laughs> Interesting parallel life thing going on. Uh, we're both from Illinois. I am from central Illinois. Uh, so I was, am I originally. I, I was born in Springfield and then moved to Pawnee, just south of Springfield, Wow. Uh, when I was three and left there to go to college. So I am like total Illinois flatlander, which means I am a lifelong Bears fan, as are you. Both came to Nashville to work in the music business, and that's where we start to separate because I changed tracks once I got here. Um, And you actually went on to the track more similar to the one that I came here to do than the one that I actually ended up doing. (laughs) (laughs) After 20-some years of trying not to move to Nashville and doing music from Illinois, right. I eventually succumbed. But actually, <laughs> truth be told, when we finally decided to move to Nashville, although I did and do work in music, it really wasn't music that finally got us to move here. Was it not? We can get to that later, but yeah. Springfield, I went to... I went to um, gosh, I think kindergarten and first grade in Springfield or just outside of Springfield in Chatham. Oh, in Illinois. Chatham. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
So I lived there when I was a little a little kid. Um, I was born in Davenport, Iowa, but I always say I escaped when I was about a week old and lived in Springfield and then Peoria, that area, until I was about 10. So, yeah. Well, I knew you had the Peoria connection, but I didn't realize you were in Springfield or Chatham. I mean, so you know yeah. right where Pawnee is then. I've seen it on Do you remember? highway signs from 55, but I mean, I, I was, like I said, I was in probably first or second grade, maybe ah, second okay. grade. Yeah. We left your, your Springfield area. Your we geographic went. footprint was small, yeah. but uh, yeah. Pawnee was like, like now I would consider it running distance away. Like if I lived up well, there, I would run from Pawnee to Chatham to Divernon and back to Pawnee. That'd be, that'd be like a good lap. Was it, it was kind of by that big lake. Sankris yeah. Lake, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and Chatham was closer to Lake Springfield, and then Lake Spring. Pawnee was uh, one, two, maybe three exits south, two exits okay. south because it was the Chatham yeah. exit, and then Glenarm exit, and then exit eighty two, uh, Route right. one hundred four was for Pawnee. Yeah, yes. see, I see that because Michelle's family lives on the Illinois side of St. Louis, and so for many years we drove <clears throat> on fifty five from Chicago to St. Louis, and so. You know, I know every exit yeah. <laughs> between, between there. So. I went to elementary ball high school for some reason. I mean, uh, not high school, elementary ball grade school. Yeah. In Chatham, I think. I know right where that is. That is on the original Route 66. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah, that little two-lane country road. There, There's a portion of the original Route 66 right there. It wow. may be hey. paved over at this point. I'm sure it is. But, uh, but yeah. See, it, there you go. We, we got even it. more in common than you thought. <laughs> and we're the same age, right? You and me? We're pretty close. Yeah, I was I was born in 70, in July of 70. So was I, July of 70, me too. Oh, my gosh. What day? 7-7. Seven, seven. Oh, 28. That's when my son was born, 7 28 Yeah. Nice. Well, you, yeah, you've got, uh, let's see. 7-7-70. Seven, seven, literally, literally three weeks on you. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Crazy, huh? 70. <laughs> okay, so it's getting weird. Yeah, it is. That'd be weird if we went to kindergarten together or something. <laughs> that would be really weird. I uh, except I, I would know me. you had we gone to kindergarten because half of my graduating class I was in kindergarten with. Well, I didn't have this name. My name wasn't John Thompson when I was there. Ah, I won't say what it was, but I was adopted when I was a teenager, so Thompson was not my original. Ah. I'll tell you sometime when we're not broadcasting it. Sure, on, sure. You know, millions of listeners, but yeah, Thompson is not my birth name. Yeah, I I knew that, and I've heard some of your adoption story, but I had forgotten that it was at uh, as a teenager. I thought it was that one week old escape from Iowa. Thing. Oh no 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 no! I I was. Uh, my 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 mom remarried when I was twelve, and my then stepdad. Uh, I actually changed my name to his name when I was in eighth grade, but then didn't legally get adopted till I was eighteen. I got to sign my own adoption papers. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Oh, I went up cool. to judge myself and said, "Yes, I give myself permission to be adopted by this guy." That I was pretty that. cool. I love that. Yeah, pretty fun. Wow. Yeah, I had totally forgotten that that was that uh, you were a teenager during that. I just. Yeah. I remember it was early on in your life, but I thought it was earlier than that. So you actually yeah. have memories of your pre-Thompson life then, oh, yeah. uh, unlike unlike a, an infant would. Correct. Yes. Wow. Many, 
many and many unfortunate ones, but there's mm. some good ones in there too. But yeah, it was a it was a rough go the first first ten years or so. There's a handful of people out there that are I'm still friends with that knew me back then too. Just a handful, you know, that still remember me you're from still, still in touch with Thompson. Them? A couple of them, you know, Facebook has a way of people finding you, but yeah. only if they went to school with me or something like that, you know. Yeah, it was kind of funny because the way I announced to my parents. This is a funny story I haven't told really. Um, my younger brothers had already changed their name to Thompson, but I was kind of holding out and I, I felt weird about it. And um, even though I definitely had no affection for my biological father, and frankly, I, we were all terrified of him, um, there was just something his whole side of the family, my grandparents, my, or my grandfather, my, you know, there's something about just cutting all those ties that I wasn't quite ready to do as quickly as my brothers were. I was the oldest of the kids and stuff, but I was really thinking about it. And the more I bonded with my stepdad and I kind of decided I was ready to do it, but I wanted to think of some big grand gesture to let my parents know that I'd made that decision. So I decided that I would let them know at my eighth grade commencement by having them, when they called my name forward to get my little certificate that I graduated from eighth grade, instead of calling out my previous name they would call out john thompson well, clever yeah you know seems like the kind of thing you do in a john hughes movie or something like that <laughs> so i uh i went to my teachers or administrators or somebody and told them this story and they were like uh yeah the, <laughs> we're gonna need a, we're gonna need some backup on this story <laughs> like, yeah. you can't just change your name that's so really have, cool but we can't do that I had to have my grandma go into the school and assure them that this was authorized because I couldn't get my parents to sign an authorization or anything. And then that would ruin the surprise. So my grandma went in and had to explain it to all the higher ups. And then everybody was in on it. The principal and the teachers all thought it was really cool. Now they all knew about the story because half the administration of the school was on the lookout for my biological father. They were always afraid that we were going to get abducted or something like that. Oh, so that oh wow. They, they knew what was going on, but, um, so then the day comes and they, they have to put, they put you all in alphabetical order. So now all of a sudden, after years of being in a certain place in the alphabetical order, I'm in the wrong spot and all the kids are going, Hey, you're in the wrong spot. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. They're like, what are you talking about? We know, we know your name. You're in the wrong spot. <laughs> I'm like, no, just let me go. Let me go. And finally they call out my new name and all my friends are like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, what kind of weird prank is this? This isn't funny. And my parents just start crying. Everybody's excited and, and nobody understands what in the world is going on. So basically the end of eighth grade, I announced to everybody that I have a new name. And then I start freshman year of high school with this new name. And I thought it was a nice clean break, but of course I've got the same face, you know, so all the, <laughs> all the kids that show up, they're still like, what did you do? How do you change your name? That doesn't make any sense. So it took a while for some of my friends and some of the kids that knew me to get it through their head. And there was one kid in particular who I swear all the way through high school, he kept calling me by my other name. Like in when we were seniors, even after we graduated from high school, he kept referring to me by my junior high name. I bet you if we saw each other now, that's still what he would call me. But Out of spite or is he just not yeah, had read, had not read Dale little, Carnegie? Yeah, he's just a little thick. <laughs> Good word. <laughs> well, what a great way to announce that. I don't want to call it a transition because that means something else these days. But that, um, <laughs> well, and you were at a commencement. That's, that's cool. 
I had not heard that story. And I don't think I've ever told that story outside of just a couple of friends. I've never told it publicly, but it's fun. That is fun. So how did you get from central Illinois to north central to northern Illinois? How we got to Peoria was just we were still with my biological father, and he was kind of a con man and a low-level criminal type. So I think we just went wherever he could find a place to hold up. Mm. That was much what that was about. So he found a spot. It was a it was kind of an abandoned farm outside of Peoria. And we could live there as long as, uh, like the the this doctor owned it, and as long as we maintained the property, we could live there, that kind of thing. So it was out in the middle of nowhere, good place for him to go because after he was done doing whatever he did, he could sort of disappear out there, and he would tend to leave us there for quite a while at a time, and he would go do his business, and then show up every few weeks or something like that. Um, so we were there for a while until things got really bad. And then finally, uh, my mom, who was very reluctant to leave because she didn't believe in divorce and that kind of stuff. She finally was convinced that it was dangerous to stay. And so at one point she packed up uh, her four kids and in the middle of, uh, a day when she believed he was in court somewhere. She packed us up with the help of some total strangers and we just disappeared. We went into hiding for a year and lived at a rescue mission for a while. And then a Christian camp up in the Chicago area and my grandparents and most of my mom's family had lived in the Chicago suburbs. So eventually when the dust settled and it was safe for us to come out of hiding, the Chicago area became home. So that, that was where I ended up living from the time I was 10 until about 11 or 12, 11 years ago. How does one know the dust has settled enough to come out of hiding? <laughs> I was 10 years old, so I just kind of did what the grown-ups told along for the ride, sure. I think that it was a situation where there were definitely you know police and law enforcement involved, and my biological father had, had uh, been in touch or somehow the police had assured my mom that it was safe and some sort of legal proceedings were underway for them to be divorced. And, um, he had assured certain people that he wasn't going to cause any trouble or whatever. So, um, and for a couple of years, it seemed like that would be okay. And then once he found out she had met somebody and was going to get remarried, he, the veneer wore off and, he lost it again and there were witnesses and, and then he disappeared and well, he, he went back to, uh, went back to his true self and there's a lot more in that story that I probably won't go into at this point, but it was, yeah. it was not pretty. He died in 1993 in a hotel in Switzerland and he was wanted by multiple governments wow. and law enforcement things. So he's, he was a bad dude. He never, never really, uh, found a way to get it together. So wow. sad. Do you have any hunches on where that came from for him? Like, was it a continuation of something or was, was he just a bad apple? Um, I know that addiction ran in his family pretty, pretty deep. And I've heard little bits of things about, uh, him learning some con kind of techniques from his own mom at one point. I heard little bits about that. Um, 
I think that he had a lot of charisma from what I've heard. A great sense of humor was really, really intelligent, um, very charismatic, very bright. And I think that like a lot of people, the question is just, are you going to use that for good or for ill? And mm-hmm. I just, from, from what I can understand, he didn't have the kind of people around him to mold him in the right way so that that stuff could be used in the right way. At one point he even, when my mom became a Christian, she, she had grown up in the church in an Episcopal church, kind of, you know, sort of traditional mainline, uh, background, but not really very personal yeah. for her. And then, and then one of my aunts had a very radical Christian experience and shared it with my mom who was pretty desperate for something like that. And when she experienced that, uh, it changed everything for her. And I have very, my earliest memories are associated with these kind of Jesus movement, hippie Bible study kind of things. And, um, he, at one point when, when I was really little, she left him and then he convinced her that he had changed. And he was so, he was so good at that, that he even became a pastor of a small little storefront church. (laughs) And I have memories of watching him preach. Wow. Wow. Is he good at this? Like, he could sweat and cry and he was very dramatic and, you know, he, he was like a TV preacher without the cameras. Uh, it was just these tiny little congregations, but he could get people going. So, you know, I think that it, again, he had a certain gifting. I just don't think that he was ever in the, he wasn't given the right people in his life to steer it in the right direction. And when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, even when I was a young adult, I was consumed with nothing but hatred and anger towards him. And then as I grew up, I think part of the forgiveness process is also to to kind of s- see it from another perspective and realize that most people honestly do the best with the hand that they're dealt in life. And most people don't intend to be evil. They end up evil. <laughs> you know. And uh-huh. I think that he probably was doing the best in his own warped, underdeveloped way. And he also, I think, had a mental illness. He was a sociopath and sociopaths dissociate. You know, they they can't connect any kind of absolute. They don't have a compass that tells them what north and south is morally or anything. So truth becomes relative to what they need it to be in any given moment. And that's not a choice. It's not. Therefore, it's not a moral thing. A lot of times the way it would be for for an quote unquote normal person. It doesn't mean that it's not a moral issue, but it just, it's hard to relate to for somebody who has a functioning conscience, but it's helped me to be able to have more sympathy and also just less bitterness to just feel more sorrow than anger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is a a, a major part of forgiveness too. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I had to be in a relationship with him. You know, I, I came to a lot of this after he died, um, fortunately, I never had it tested by having to actually you know, um, have a relationship with him. But for my own sake, it, it helped me at the time, and it helps me now. It helped. It, I just feel like I've learned. I've learned a lot about being at peace. Doesn't mean I would want to do it again, but you know, it's. I think I've I've learned something, and it, and I've been able to apply it in other situations in my life where forgiveness is not something that always requires that the other side deserves it or asks for it or anything. It's um, 
it helps when you can realize that maybe the other side is doing their best sometimes with the with the hand they've been dealt and you just uh, yeah. you just move on. Yeah, I can think of another father like that. Megan's dad, he had a similar scenario, completely different colors and nuances to those details. But she has often said that he loved her the best he could. May not yeah. have been, quote, enough is what she needed, but it was mm-hmm. the best that he could give. <laughs> so that, that, that fits yeah, into know, what you were describing. It's not letting anybody off any hooks, you know, it's, but it's not our job ultimately to, to that's, that's the beauty of not having to be a judge. Yeah. You're no kidding. Wow. That's a, that's, a, that's pretty powerful. I did not know that layer of the onion to it all. Yeah. Have that's you... another thing I don't usually talk about. What are you just some kind of Oprah? Here? <laughs> <laughs> you get me talking about central Illinois and it gets deep quick. Hey, hey, it's a the, scary part of the country. The me. the roots run deep. That black soil, man. There's something about that's it. Right. Those big thunderstorms. Yes, that you can see coming for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, I love it. I am so glad I have ended up in Nashville. But there are often times I look back on my. My first 18, well, 22, if you count the summers I was there during college, uh, my first almost half of my life now of being from there. And I, I love being able to say I come from the flatland of Midwest. It was great. And I love being able to say that I graduated high school with you know, half my senior class I was in kindergarten with. And we were all in the same building. It was a ginormous building for the small town, but it was, it was the same building. And there were only 42 of us in our senior class. So, you know, 20, 21 of us were in kindergarten together. Wow. So yeah, this own... area is so full of people that aren't from here that it's it's easy to feel like you're at home because you're, right. it's not like you're the only person that's not from Nashville. You know, it's, right. Right. It's rare to find someone that's native. Yeah, I've I've been down here for going on 26 years. And I have met 154 native Nashvilleans. <laughs> and you've counted them all. I can keep count. I just have to remember the, like, as soon as I meet one, I'm like, oh, well, you're 155. The next one will be 155. Surely wow. there, I've, there are obviously more than that, but I've only come across 154 native Nashvilleans in 26 years wow. that, that have self-identified um, as... <laughs> Native Nashvilleans. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. So you came here. I I, well, I came here because I wanted to work in the music business, and I was telling someone recently that I considered myself a musician until I moved to Music City, <laughs> and realized that I had such a long way to go to actually yeah. being a quote legitimate musician. I got thrown in the deep end down here and musically could not swim. So I uh, was like, you know what? I'm going to be a very educated and adoring listener and a fan and an enjoyer of music. Made some music for a while uh, corporately with a choir that I was a part of, but that was 20 years ago. Wow. Yep. Well, if it wasn't for people like you, there would have been no industry. Kind of like now, there is no industry. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nobody's buying music. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's true. There's a lot of people that don't have that self awareness when they get here. They just get dis- depressed, you know. Yeah, but I grew up on um, 
I'm trying to remember what my first records that I bought intentionally. I know it was a res band. I think it was called Bootleg. It's when they the, it was on Sparrow because yeah, I was, was a, at that show that they recorded. That's awesome. It was a blue cassette. I was that was one of the first concerts I ever went to. And it uh, then I had uh, Petra's "More Power to You," of course, on cassette. And mm-hmm. all bets were off in a good way when I popped Soldiers Under, Under Command into my little portable ghetto blaster. And I've been a striper fan ever since. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was what I needed uh, for where I was. It's funny, I remember the getting time. the first striper tape, the Yellow and Black Attack, and because I heard one of the songs on this radio show, this late night radio show, and I don't even think it was a Christian show, but I could tell. It, I mean, they were talking about the fact that this was a a band that was doing God rock, I think they called it, but it was a mainstream radio show yeah and you had to go to a mainstream record store to find it they yeah. didn't sell it christian bookstores and i went and bought it on cassette and it was funny because the album cover had this fist with like the finger pointing at the earth and then all these missiles like it was pointing the missiles to the earth yep but no picture of the band and i bought it and it was an ep it had five or six songs on it and I bought the thing and I listened to it and I, I dug it. It reminded me a lot of Boston or Sticks or some of those kind of like 70s yeah. hard rock bands with all the vocal stacks and stuff. Yeah. Because I was not much of a true metalhead, but I liked the melodic stuff and I really liked it. And then a friend of mine at church was a big metalhead, but not a Christian metalhead. But I went to get it for him, but I wanted to get it on vinyl because that's how he liked to get stuff. And I went to the record store to get it on vinyl. And when I looked at the back of the record and I saw the picture of them, I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> these, these chicks are ugly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of Aquanet. <laughs> it was funny. I was like, what in the world did they do to themselves? <laughs> Welcome to funny. L.A. I don't like this kind of music because I, I did not like bands that looked that way, but I was like, well, but I decided I liked it before I knew what they looked like. So. But he, yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you had some awareness there. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was just the LA scene back in the day. It was still stupid, but <laughs> fair enough. Well, I was really one of the, one of the most fun things I did when I was working for the Cornerstone Festival was when I helped convince them to come and play at Cornerstone. I think it was 2003 and they had never played at Cornerstone back in the day. And I was full-time staff at the festival. And between John Heron and I, we laid it on really thick and we really, really wanted them to come. And so in one night we had Larry Norman with a full band, which was actually my band. So I got to play on stage and back up Larry Norman. And then third day played after Larry Norman and then Striper played after them. And I remember how the guys in third day were friends of mine, but they, they, they're used to headlining, you know, at that point they were headliners at every festival they played at and they got to Cornerstone and they were like, so Striper is playing after us. They're like, this is Cornerstone, man. You just got to roll with it. This place is different. So, yeah, but it was pretty fun. I think it was my birthday too. I think it was my 33rd birthday. I got to actually be on stage playing in Larry Norman's band, really kind of, you know, my band being his band 
and then opening for Striper, you know, if you wanted to call it that. Sure. That was a surreal experience. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, at, at Cornerstone lie. of all places. At Cornerstone Festival <clears throat> on the main stage, yeah. Not yeah. going to lie. That was definitely a trip. I was at Cornerstone, would have been summer of 92, oh, yeah. maybe 93. When I first moved to town, my entry into the music business, w- once reality set in that I wasn't going to be on the music side of music business, I was, and, and, and honestly, I moved here to work on the business side of music business. So it's not like it was a dream deferred or thwarted once I got here. I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm in the right place. I need to be working on the, mu- the business side of the music business. Quite honestly, I wanted to give back to the industry that was so formative for me in teenage years because I was in the thick of it as you were with altar boys in the choir and, you know, moving into Krumbacher and all these like super underground Christian based bands, blood, good Baron cross, white heart, Petra, like that whole scene. I mean, it was just a thing, even on the pop side with David Meese and Benny Hester and then, you know, Keggy and second chapter. I mean, it was, it was, had such a big formative part in my teenage years when I met a guy in, college who was on the board of directors of creation festival for a long time actually might still be and he became a mentor of mine i worked on concerts with him and he kind of you know taught me the the concert side of the business and just took me under his wing and then he said and i i cannot get you a job but i will do what i can to get you an interview i'll call my buddies down in nashville um give a plug Hey, I'm working for this college now. I've got a student who wants to come down there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can, would you at least meet with him? So he's like, you get the job, but I'll help you get in the door. Um, right. and, it, and it worked. And where was your first job? I worked for a merch company and I was at Cornerstone um, on the DC Talk payroll one year <laughs> when they when they played there. So you were there the night that they played after the 77s? Yes, when the crowd would not stop singing the 77 song and did not want to hear DC talk. (laughs) That was one of the most famous, most incredible moments in Cornerstone history was 77's playing do it for love at the last song of their set. And the crowd, we were all just screaming the chorus over and over and over. And the MC came out and, you know, there was always a 20, 30 minute break between bands when they changed the sets over and the crowd never stopped singing, do it for love during the whole break. And then it's time to introduce DC Talk and the crowd just keeps singing. And DC Talk, it's like they came out and the crowd just keeps singing to it for love, like right over DC Talk. Like they did not want to hear DC Talk. It was hilarious. And Toby even told me years ago that he remembers that. And he was like, they were so freaked out to have to follow the 77s because they were fans of the 77s. And, you know, and every, again, every other festival, DC Talk would have been the biggest band there, but at Cornerstone, the 77s were the biggest band. Well, that's the thing about Cornerstone Festival is it was, I mean, it was fringe and it wanted to stay fringe. It it was just real. It was, yes, it was not self-aware fringe. It just was, that was the only planet we all knew. Right. So good times. Yeah. So there's another parallel there. <laughs> we were probably at the same cornerstone, didn't know each other. Well, I was at every one of them. So if you were there, I was That's there. That's crazy. So what brought you here then? 
because I was surprised to say to hear you say that it wasn't actually music that brought you here. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I had had opportunities over the years, you know. So I started True Tunes when I was nineteen. I really started working on it when I was sixteen, um, but it officially opened when I was nineteen. So I was back in '89, and and it did pretty well. And then in the mid '90s, it changed ownership, and then the the people that bought it, they just within a year, it was they were shutting down the store, shutting down the magazine. Everything was it was a disaster. Yeah. And then they sold it to some other people from texas and those those folks did their best for a while they started the website and kind of got it running and the website did really well they launched an internet radio station way before there was such a thing as streaming i mean we had the first streaming radio thing by like a decade or something it was ridiculous um way ahead of our time with, with that which was pretty fun but still the business never really recovered. The other thing that happened was when we started True Tunes, we kind of owned that market. And our slice of the world was unique because uh, the kind of music that was normal and center of the bullseye for us was spiritually grounded, spiritually interesting, faith-oriented, but not tidy and in a little box. It wasn't necessarily all quote-unquote Christian music. We didn't have those kind of boundaries on things. That's not how we looked at stuff. Even in the name True Tunes, the whole point was to get away from some of those labels and limits. Right. Um, and so we were the catch-all for the people that were not, they were they were maybe Christians. A lot of them, some of them weren't, but they were not interested in CCM music necessarily. Although there was some stuff that happened in the CCM space that they were fine with. But there was a lot that happened in that space that they just weren't Yeah, they're like, uh, no thanks. And so the beauty of the True Tunes thing was if they were part of our world, they just never heard about the bad stuff like because we just never talked about it. Right. So most of our readers of the magazine and our customers, we were their only access point. So they never – we didn't have to give Carmen bad reviews or anything because they just didn't know the stuff existed if we didn't talk about it. But by the mid-'90s – alternative music and rock and the more extreme forms of stuff, the rap stuff that Christian bookstores and Christian music had really not embraced in the late eighties and early nineties, all of a sudden by the mid to late nineties, all of those places were embracing it. So our niche had gone mainstream. Right. And that meant that people didn't need to mail order music the way that they did at first. You could find it in all these Christian bookstores. You could find the met, the heavy metal, the thrash metal, the speed metal, the grindcore, yeah. the death metal, you know, all the different strains of metal. You could find the punk and the the hardcore stuff. You could find the even the fringe bands like the Vigilantes of Love and Over the Rhine and stuff like that. There were more and more Christian stores that were starting to carry that stuff. So True Tunes was more and more influential in terms of selling that music. We just weren't actually selling the, the music ourselves we were responsible for people finding out what they wanted to buy, but then they were buying it in other places. So the business model had a problem. And that whole thing by the end of the nineties, basically the true tunes as it existed was pretty much done. And so the website existed still, but when they basically told me that they couldn't continue to pay me, I ended up going to work for Cornerstone for a while and then doing freelance work 
and I still worked for the festival. I still, I mean, for True Tunes, I still represented them at different events here and there, but it was a part-time kind of a thing. I didn't really have any authority there or ownership. And I did that for a while, but every so often I had labels or magazines or other people that would reach out to me and ask if I was ready to move to Nashville. I, a couple times over the years, had different people offer me things, but I really didn't want to move to Nashville. I had a an impression of Nashville as being where the compromise happened. <laughs> like to me, it was, it was, there was a clickiness in Nashville. There was a compromise in Nashville. There was there was the mainstream part of Christian music was all in Nashville. And that was the stuff that my life was all about finding an alternative to. And because I would come to town often and I worked in Nashville and I sold ads for the magazine and I interviewed artists and stuff. And there was aspects of it that I dug and I liked being here and seeing friends, but I also felt like the churchiness of the culture. um, I didn't relate to as an Illinois guy, as a Chicago guy, like the Bible belt thing felt really fake to me. And then I started to notice how the Bible beltiness seeped into the Christian music world. And, um, that felt disingenuous at times and alien to me. And I started to feel like that was part of why Christian music was never going to feel authentic to the rest of the world was because it really was kind of the dialect of a a tribe that was never going to be authentic music for the bubble. Yeah. And the bubble was never where I was from, nor was it what I was interested in propagating or anything. That was that was never my calling. I don't think I really understood how significant the bubble was, how big the bubble was, how pervasive it was. Because again, Chicago, it's just not the same. You know, you're yeah. not you're not in that same space. But I touched up against it enough in Nashville to go, <laughs> like that's that's creepy. And I had a couple of bad experiences as well. So I kind of prejudged Nashville as being like where cool things went to sell out. And that was just because I hadn't really experienced the positive side, the community side, the the awesome aspects of Nashville yet. Right. And so I had just flat categorically and my wife Michelle same thing like she just never was interested in Nashville either in 2006 I had a very uh, serious health scare that almost I almost died I, I had a internal bleeding thing that sent me into the hospital and I was in an induced coma for three days and it was a miracle that I even lived and when that happened I definitely came out of that thing feeling like a Super, supernatural intervention had happened and I was given a new chapter that I did not, that, that I, I, I felt like I'd been given a gift. And Michelle and I had been doing a lot of missions work. We'd gone to Europe several times on missions trips. We'd even talked about the possibility of doing missions work in Europe full time. I'd gone on a long trip. I think it was a little over a month in Latin America to Mexico and Colombia and Honduras and really enjoyed traveling and, and kind of applying what I knew about music and storytelling to missions work. So I, we had started to explore that. I also had been pastoring at a church uh, up there that that we had gone to for many years. And so I'd started to th- think about maybe doing full-time ministry stuff. And I realized that we would kind of have gone anywhere in the world that God had called us to other than Nashville. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Nashville was, was like Nineveh and we were not going to Nashville. And a, which totally means, of, guess that's where you're being called to. Exactly. Like, <laughs> there's this 
vintage CCM artist named Scott Wesley Brown who had a song called Please Don't Send Me to Africa. Yeah. I was, I was like, oh, no, I'm cool with, with Africa. Just don't send me to Nashville. Yeah. And what was interesting was in the months after my health scare, I really started to feel that there was a, a purpose for my life having been spared. And I was very eager to to figure out what that purpose was. And I'm not saying just like overall God has a purpose for all of us and stuff like that. I meant there was a specific reason or another chapter or something that I was supposed to do. And I was kind of confident that I was going to figure it out. It's hard to articulate, but I felt like I was going to figure something out about that. And so Mm -hmm. in the months after that, as I was recovering, which took a while to do, (laughs) it was a long recovery and it was a fairly devastating recovery because it was a financially devastating experience as well. Yeah. But in the process, all of a sudden we started to hear about friends in Nashville, close friends whose marriages were falling apart, friends who were succumbing to depression, addiction, suicide attempts, um, loneliness and it was just devastating and our pastoral sensibilities were deeply bothered by this and i had been producing a a kids record that actually still has yet to be released but i'd been spending a lot of time in nashville working on this record and then getting a little bit more time with some friends and also getting a taste of the lack of community that was available to some of these folks compared to the taste of community that we had experienced in our church in the Chicago area. And all of a sudden, Nashville was not a place to come for networking or for the business or even for our own music, our musical pursuits or anything. It was more like a mission field. It was like a place where I knew I could understand the hearts and the minds of a lot of the people coming to this town. And I could relate to the sense of disenfranchisement, disconnectedness, frustration. And I felt uniquely, I guess, qualified and called to not to like come to Nashville and plant a church or build some big thing, but just to come and be here and see who we could love and who could we serve. It was really as simple as that. And Michelle thought the exact same thing. She was feeling the same way on her own. And one, I remember there was one weekend when our parents had the kids and we were just having an extended weekend long date where we went to a couple of concerts and just got to go out to eat and, you know, spend time talking. And that was one of the first times I dared to bring up, what about Nashville? And she was like, yeah, I've been really thinking maybe it's not Europe. Maybe it's Nashville. Maybe we're supposed to go to Nashville and just take some of what we've learned about home group ministry and just our just our sense of hospitality that we feel like just just go to Nashville and just see what what'll happen so it was really people it had nothing to do with the job it had nothing to do with the industry because I thought I'd figured out how to make it work as far as that goes now I will say that God and his wisdom knew things I didn't know I had no idea the extent to which the music industry was about to fall apart so yeah. all of my clients all of the work I was doing, was about to go up in flames and I didn't see that coming at all. So had I not moved to Nashville, I'd probably be selling TVs at Best Buy or something by now. So we came here exactly when we needed to on a professional level, but that's not at all why we came. We came because we felt like there's people that maybe, and we thought 
we thought there were certain people that it was going to be that were friends of ours and we, you know, we'll move to town and they'll come over to the house and hang out and we'll be able to, you know, reconnect with them. It hasn't been those people. We've tried, but it's been a whole different crop of people that we didn't even know before that have come through our house and come through our lives that we've been able to build relationships with. And I've married, I think, gosh, seven couples since we moved here. <laughs> it's like, that's really you know, cool. It's, yeah. So it's been, it's definitely been affirmed that that's why we were here after we decided to come capital, which was then EMI reached out to me about joining their publishing company. And I got a straight job at a big company, which I never thought I would do. And how life has evolved since then has been amazing and really funny at times. And now I'm the associate dean at Trevecca's School of Music, and that's that's wild, and I love it. Um, none of it is what I expected, but that's not why we came. You know, we came just to to love people and to see how we could be used. Yeah, that's cool. When I moved to town, I I came here with like grand ideals that were relatively quickly dashed upon the rocks uh, of a, of a rugged shoreline and I'll kind of echo somewhat of your story, but I want to start it with a caveat that I don't want it to sound like I have it figured out and the industry wasn't good enough for me. So I got out of it because that's not it at all. But I, I came here thinking that the quote industry was something different than it actually was. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I wanted to come here was because I, I legitimately wanted to give back to a, a, a work, um, a, a subculture, an industry, whatever you want to call it, that was so influential uh, and impactful to me as a teenager in the flatlands of central Illinois that it, it just seemed like somewhere I needed to go not, and kind of pay my respects. I was a recipient of some really cool things that came out of Nashville in the eighties. Thank you, Phil Kagey. Thank you. The other, the bands that I'd mentioned because it was a good artistic alternative to what was available from the mainstream world in the eighties, you know, in right. the, like in the decadent me first eighties, I fell in love with the yellow and black attack album because they sounded and looked like Motley Crue. To me, right. that that was key because I I got into, um, you know, the Shout at the Devil record came out. Gosh, that was 82, 83, somewhere in there. Um, about the time my parents divorced. Mm. And physiologically, age-wise, biologically, everything is a tailspin at that point. And then for <laughs> the rug to be pulled out from underneath you, um, I kind of spiraled for a little bit and I found myself, well, this is really cool music. You know, th this was awesome. And my sister's three years older, so she's 15 and her own level of, you know, teenage adolescence and angst and tailspin and all that stuff. She's very musical also. So music has always been a thing for me. So it was like, okay, so there's Motley Crue. And at the time, um, Bon Jovi's Runaway was like their first breakaway single. And I remember when they played Taylorville, Illinois, they played a tavern in Taylorville, Illinois, which was like 10 miles east of the little farm town I grew up in right before Runaway exploded. You know, so it was like, yeah, let's go see this band Bon Jovi. 
in this little farm town. And then all of a sudden they're all over the radio and then they're playing arenas. So when I came across soldiers under command and then the yellow and black attack, I was like, wow, this, this is a, a hair band from LA, just like Motley Crue was and, and all the other bands at the time. So it literally was an alternative for me. <laughs> the other day I was at cookout restaurant yeah. and I was there with my kids and it occurred to me that they were playing contemporary Christian music. Yeah. Which I'm not like a, a big consumer of, but I did find it reassuring that I wasn't going to hear baby got back or, or girls, 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 <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. I mean, I mean, I've got three kids under eight. They're going to find out about that stuff eventually, but if they're going to have junk, you want it to be in their bellies, not in their ears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's, I'd say that example to say, you know, I, I could have grown up listening to girls, 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 which I did. Um, but it was also nice to have these other bands that were at least singing about some spiritual things um, on, on the good side. And some of those musicians were actually recording like Bible stories in some really cool poetic way or what have you. And that took root in my heart and my soul. And I was like, okay, well, I have an in to this world. That'd be a cool area for me to go give back to. Long answer to that's why I came here to work in that scene. And then I started working in that scene. And and I know there's a little bit of don't see the man behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, one of those never meet your heroes kind of thing. Right. Um, so there was just a little bit of disenchantment enough that, okay, well, I like the town. Um, I, I interviewed with label after label. I interviewed with EMI. And I, I occasionally on Sunday morning, I will see a guy that I actually interviewed with, there's no way he would remember who I was because I wasn't rememberable because I walked in and I, I was, I was talking about, well, here's how I'd like to see things change. Um, I didn't come as an immigrant into their system. I came in as um, like a pioneer would to kind of revamp the system. And in a job interview, that's not really what someone's looking for. <laughs> right. So it was a square peg round hole situation. So I never really, I never really got in to the industry that I moved here to get into. So that's er, early on in this conversation I mentioned. So, you know, I came in and then my path went a different direction. That's, that's how. Cool. Well, you probably did better. <laughs> I, I, I think so. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I definitely think so. Especially with the way the industry as a whole is now. And it, it's basically, it's a who moved my cheese thing. You know, so, I mean, the, the it's out there to be had. The, the mouse has to just go look for the cheese because somebody moved it. Are you familiar with that book? Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a book called Who Moved My Cheese. And it's all about when when you're setting on a course and you get familiar with where your your food, your sustenance, your cheese is, and then all of a sudden it's moved. Well, oh, come on, adapt. <laughs> you know, right. go, go find more I mean, What's more interesting cheese. is how the, the industry was so big and so rich. And there were a lot of people that just, you know, it was like any other industry and they liked their job and they liked what they did and it was all fine. When 65, 70% of that disappeared, a lot of people got cut. A lot of really good, smart, talented people got cut. Yeah. But then, then some of the people who were really in it just to get a paycheck also started to feel like, you know, I can make more money 
in real estate or something else. So it does honestly feel to me that the folks who are left, not all of them, but a higher percentage, I would venture to guess, that are left in the music business really love music. You know, like they're mm-hmm. they're they're making less than they probably would make for the skills that they have if they were in another industry. Mm-hmm. But there's something about music that that makes it worth doing it. So there's it's an interesting time to be involved. Plus there's you know, it's it's kind of like the people that managed to hang on through the depression are the ones that ended up owning everything after the depression. <laughs> right, <laughs> so I feel, right. feel kind of like there's a little bit of that at work right now. Yeah, and, and five, ten years from now, they'll be going to see if you just stick it out. You, <laughs> right. you'll you'll come out on the other side. Yeah, that's my Nashville music industry story. At least at least that section of it. I did go on to work for a label for a while, connected to the CCM world, which you know, ultimately led to, I was able to co-produce two jazz records, jazz, jazz trio records that both hit top five in Japan. So that was, that was kind of cool. I never would have done that had I not moved to Nashville. Um, So yeah, it's, it's still there. I I tell people that, um, you know, as I self-deprecate saying I I was a musician until I moved here, but what I converted to was a, a very loyal fan of music and i mean i've got good ears um i tell people that i i can feel the rhythm but i can't dance it doesn't come out but it's in there (laughs) i can appreciate it but i just can't express it um either musically or um physically with dance either but man i yeah there's there's music going all the time so music city is it's a great town to raise a family in so that's we 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 have talked about moving several times over the last 15 years, but we have decided to stay. Good. Well, tell me a little bit about your book. Well, I know about your book because I've read it um, and have my signed copy here. But tell the listeners a little bit about it because it's it, it weaves in a lot of these stories, but in a very delicious way. Ah, I see what you did there. Well, so yeah, it's called Jesus Bread and Chocolate, Crafting a Handmade Faith in a Mass Market World. And it's it started with uh, it's kind of an interesting conversation I was having with a friend of mine who is a baker in Chicago, and he's just extremely talented baker, and he made breads and sweet sweet rolls and things, and he had a shop that did things in the old Central European tradition. And every time he came to anything at church or came over to the house, he'd bring these things that were just insanely good. And we were talking about it one night, and. And he was telling me about the techniques and stuff. And, and I thought that you had to have a really huge factory to make stuff that good. And he, he said, actually, you know, this is the same way people have made this stuff for a thousand years. He said, factories make it worse. And we were talking about that. And he was telling me about the corners you got to cut in order to make stuff at scale. And, and I, I kind of off the cuff made a comment that about the dang industrial revolution, (laughs) you know, how, (laughs) It, it really seemed like it was kind of the explosion of all of the worst aspects of human impulses of our quest for everything being as cheap as possible and as convenient as possible and that we're willing to sacrifice quality for convenience and the planet we're given that choice and, <laughs> and, and the planet. Yeah, well, just exactly. And, <laughs> and I said something I said. I said, you know, it really seems like, you know, that applies to the way we do our faith, too. 
our churches seem to kind of follow the same model. And in fact, I said, it really feels like the industrial revolution has shaped the way we do church a lot more than the church ever shaped the values of the industry. And when I said it, it kind of felt like, Whoa, what did I just say? Like (laughs) sometimes you say something and it's like, where's my pen? I need to write that down (laughs) because the implications of that started to hit me. And I started to really think about a lot of stuff because I was going through, this was, this was, um, after the true tunes thing had fallen apart and I was kind of sifting through the wreckage of that. And in the process of that, I'd gone through some counseling to kind of help me from, you know, just completely imploding. And this counselor had helped me reconnect with cooking because that was, I needed to find some kind of a creative hobby that was not music because music was driving me crazy. And I tell the story in more detail in the book, but I started to realize, you know, cooking was something that was so central to humanity and community and family. And in my family, it was such an important thing, our family gatherings and holidays and any excuse we had to gather at grandma's house and everybody brings stuff over and all that stuff and food and the the recipes and you know that it's so important and yet it was something that was dying because more and more carry out more and more fast food more and more factory made stuff and and the convenience and the values that that we really thought and knew were important. We were just sacrificing them for these other things. And so I started just thinking about this and then noticing, noticing a lot of examples of in my own life, I was starting to kind of move backwards on this technological spectrum. I didn't notice it at first, but over time I started to go, Oh, like I started brewing my own beer because I met a friend at church who did it. And and in the process of doing that, I really became, I could appreciate, because of doing the brewing, I learned to appreciate beer more. And then my my standards for what made beer good went up. Mm-hmm. And I became more picky about the quality of not just what I made, but what I also would consume other in other places. Yes, The same thing would apply to bread, would apply to... I found a friend, well, you know, um, Scott Withrow from church and, and his, when he opened up Olive and Sinclair, the yes. chocolate, you know, and I got to know him right at the beginning of that. And he was telling me about this chocolate and went over and tried that stuff and was like, this is crazy, good stuff. And yeah. Heard his story. And I thought he's doing the same thing. He's like going out of his way to make this stuff as difficult as possible. <laughs> but it's like, you know, there's something about the fact that it's made by hand that, is special. So anyway, all these stories I kind of was collecting over the years and I, I was talking about this a lot to people. I was talking about it in our home groups. I was talking about it at church. I was always bringing up these examples and I had several people keep saying, you should collect these things because there's a theme going on. And as, as the culture kind of was moving this way and it was becoming more and more of a trend, I started to to feel like this is a way to talk about faith as more people, especially millennials and, and our generation and younger are disconnecting from institutionalized and manufactured faith. All the statistics are showing that the church is shrinking when it comes to people our age and younger, but yet people are going out of their way to have these visceral tactile experiences they're paying money to go pick their own strawberries i remember when i first heard of that i was that's just 
why are they doing that? People are so desperate for something real that they're paying money to go pick their own strawberries instead of like next thing, something crazy, like they'll plant their own strawberries. Like <laughs> yeah. how crazy would that be? You know, the, the farmer's market's coming back and the co-ops and stuff like that. And so the book really evolved at, at first. It was identifying some underlying values that people were um, that I was seeing in these things. So it was bread, coffee, chocolate, beer, music, um, and then faith. But then in the process of writing chapters on those things and identifying each of those, I identified a different underlying value that I connected to that. My editor also pushed me to get a lot more personal than I had really intended to get. So I reveal a little bit more about my own journey and what it was that caused me to want to seek that kind of authenticity. Um, whether it's talking about the true tune story or talking about my childhood and my father and stuff. And it wasn't so much because, Oh, everybody's dying to know what makes me tick. That was why I had avoided talking about it before. Cause I felt like it was self-indulgent, but what it really was about was that I'm not unique. <laughs> you know, that my, my story has been experienced some shade of it so many times by so many people. And I realized that I found great encouragement when I heard other people go through similar things that I went through. So by sharing some of my story, it's been very special to me that other people have found that they're hungry for that kind of authenticity as well. And if I can, if we can push past and, and we can enjoy the surface stuff, we can enjoy the chocolate and the bread and the, the coffee and those things. That's great to enjoy those things, but we can also identify what's the real hunger underneath that stuff for something that's real, something that's true, something that's good, something that's sustainable, something that's communal. If we can identify that hunger and address that hunger, well, then it's kind of reminding me of Jesus when he's talking to the woman at the well saying, you know, drink from this water and you'll never thirst again. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for in the book. And that's, that's what I hope that I at least provoked or started that conversation with people. So it's, it was certainly a lot of fun to go out and read different expert excerpts of the book in different places. Like we did things in chocolate factories, we did book readings in breweries and in distilleries. And I got to go to Ireland a couple of times. And, you know, it's been a lot of fun to take, this is a kind of book that works in places where traditional books maybe don't work but yes um yeah it's still i'm still waiting for that big celebrity endorsement <laughs> to really, <laughs> it's a small book you know and it, and it lends itself to small groups and small conversations it's definitely not a uh, barnstormer by any stretch of the imagination but it's fun that there's still people discovering it it's still out there and and um you know it's been a lot of fun well, and that's the thing about um, just releasing something is people can't find out about it unless you put it on paper and put it out there. Right. Because um, unless you want people to like actively try to read your mind, which would be scary <laughs> if they tried to read my mind. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, want nobody that. wants in there. I remember when you had started posting updates that you were going on a writing retreat. I was like, oh. John, see yet another parallel that you don't know about because I secretly want to write a book also, but I have not taken the steps to make that happen. Maybe one day I will. Maybe one day I won't. We'll, we'll see. But to some degree, I think this podcast is an extension of that or maybe a precursor for that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoy this book. 
Thank you. And I loved that you made an audiobook of it because over the last two or three years, that's how I'm able to consume books. I appreciate the opportunity to stop and hold paper with ink on it and <laughs> um, s- smell a book and hold it and have that tactile experience. But I get more books read if they're read to me in my ears. It's just, it's tough for me to stop and, and read a book well, with my I always, eyes. I like telling people that um, the audio book gives people a power that many people have craved for decades. And that's the power to turn me off. Because <laughs> <laughs> I read the whole book. Yes. I recorded it over at Stephen Lywicky studio. I read the whole thing myself. Yes. And, uh, uh, and it's, you got little tidbits of our music in the background here and there. And so it's, it's every word of the thing too. I didn't skip a single one. So it was, that was a, that was a chore. That was fun. I bet it was uh, both a chore and fun, but I wanted to tell you, I think it's awesome when authors read their own books. Um, and this I can was... tell you why most don't though. <laughs> oh, I, I, I bet. It's tough. I bet. Yes. Um, but it was nice. I hope you get to it. It's writing is tough. I I always tell people I like having written more than I like writing. Yes. Um, writing itself is not nearly as much fun as going out and talking about what you wrote. Yep. I can relate to that on a, uh, on, on a running level because I'm an endurance runner. And, uh, as much as I love to run, there are runs that I dread until I have run them. And I'm like, oh my God, right. I could conquer the world. I did. You know? <laughs> right. I've got two other books. I, I, I mean, I have, I also wrote a book called Raised by Wolves that I can't believe it's been almost 20 years. And so I'm starting to work on an updated edition of that that I'm hoping to launch. I might do a Kickstarter or some kind of a, some kind of a thing to get that going. Cause I'm, I need to do some significant updates to that book because 20 years have happened. And that's the story of Christian rock from the sixties through. And I want to oh, fix cool. some things that I got wrong uh, the first time around. And I want to add a whole lot of stuff that got cut out of the first book. And I want to add a whole lot of stuff that's happened. The whole industry has fallen apart since I wrote that book. And then yeah. there, a whole new thing is coming. So I really want to do that this year. Um, I think next year is the 20th anniversary of that. So that Raised by Wolves thing, hopefully I'll be launching soon. And then I got a novel that I've been kicking around for years that I really am hoping I can get going before too long because I've got it. I think it would make a great film. And it's kind of embodies a lot of the values from the Jesus Bread and Chocolate and a lot of the music that that I've worked on and worked with for years. But it's in novel form. Yeah. It's it's about a band. Um, it's, It's pretty fun. So. And then I've got another book that is based on talks I've been given um, at music events for years. That, so I've got a lot of a lot of writing I need to do, and that's why those retreats for me are. I have to do another one pretty soon because the only way I can get I'm always doing five or six things at once, and I'm I'm pretty good functioning that way in general. But to write, I need to get away because I can't. I can't get to that creative space and do a good job when I'm trying to do five or six things at once. I have to get somewhere where that's all I'm doing for an extended period of time. And I, I learned that on both my last two books. And so I need about a week and I'm hoping at some point over the next few months that I can get a week away and get some progress made on a couple of these things. But yes, go, go and do as, as you're so, able, <laughs> as soon as you're able, go and usually do. that's a January, February thing. And this year I was not able to pull that off. So now I'm wondering if I'm going to be able to, but I'm going to try. Could you get away in the summer since you're on a college 
school year schedule now? Well, the problem is is not so much the school schedule as much as it is the family schedule. Yeah. Getting away from the family in the summer for a, a week could be tough. But yeah, understandable. It's possible. it's possible. But I'm working. I got some. I got. I got ideas. I got a lot left to do. Plus, I got the TrueTunes.com domain back, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. I'd really like to bring back some kind of a cool blog or podcast or something like that. You know, I was just talking to Phil Keggy today, and and um, another friend of mine has a podcast and is going to interview Phil. And Phil wants me to come out and kind of be there with the interview. But then he's like, "When are you doing yours?" I'm, I'm going to do my things at some point, but I want it to be really cool. I got a, I got a certain standard I got to live up to of my own. So yeah, I'm hoping by this fall to launch truetunes.com again in some form. So that's awesome. Deep yeah. admiration for, uh, Phil Kagey. Um, aside from the jazz pianist that I managed for a while, um, who holds the highest number of albums in my music library, Phil's is next. His is the highest number of albums that I have intentionally paid for yeah that's not that's Um, not surprising he's something else he's so prolific and i know sunday mornings are off times but there are still people that i see in congregation i was and i just go wow i cannot believe i am in the same room as fill in the blank (laughs) yeah um and it's like i didn't choose the churches I have attended here in town because so-and-so went there, but I've been involved in a couple really, really good churches. And I was encouraged that I was able to drink from the same well of thinkers, poets, and musicians that were also drinking from that well. And I, I guess I kind of hoped yeah. that I was a, sh- uh, a herd member <laughs> That that it was mm-hmm. it was okay to be in their flock and and drink from the same well just, mm-hmm. just vicariously and uh, just out of respect. So, yeah, I, I see him walk in the door. And I'm just like, oh man, I cannot believe he's here, <laughs> and that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And there's there's awesome. a lot of people at at the Village Chapel that I have those thoughts about, but then they're like, okay, but here they are not that musician. Here they are that person. So what cause or organization is near and dear to your heart that would be your episode's nonprofit spotlight? Probably Compassion International. Yeah, yeah. We've worked with them for years. I got to go to Ecuador with them a number of years ago. Michelle and I did and see their work firsthand. And we've sponsored a, a couple of different kids with them. The model is great because you get to connect with one kid and you can actually, you know, in most cases you can write and you hear back from the kid. But we've had a couple of uh, kids that we've been able to see from when they're little and until they're teenagers. And um, I, like I said, I've been on site and I've seen these programs and it's just incredible to see the, the work that they do. And it's nutrition and it's education. It's spiritual support, but they're not they're not going in there and saying, okay, we'll give you some food if you let us preach to you first. It's very holistic. Yes. Um, it's, it's healthcare. It's, it's even family care. We, we got to go out and see that the compassion is, is supporting the whole family in a lot of cases. So we really, really love what they do and really support that and believe in it. So 
Yeah. We could talk for another couple hours, I would imagine. <laughs> Except I would probably pass out on you. I'm I'm rapidly approaching that for sure. But this has been cool. I appreciate you carving out the time this evening sure. and on somewhat last minute notice. Happy to do it. This is good. Where can people stay connected with you? What are your socials that you want to give out? Um, you can find me at johnjthompson.com or jesusbreadchocolate.com. I think those all go to the same website. Twitter, I'm at johnjthompson. Facebook, I think I'm at John Joseph Thompson. I think that's what I had to do there. Yeah, that, that's all basic stuff. I think Instagram is the only JJT, but I'm not sure what how value that is. But the book and the main blog, you know, the johnjthompson.com thing is probably the most important thing because whatever I do next will definitely get posted there. Don't you write for another blog or is it just kind of, is that a regular thing for you or is yeah. it just something as, you know, as, as something flows, yes. then you post I, it. I write, for, think, I write for a blog called thinkchristian.net. I was doing two or three things a month. They've expanded the number of writers. And so I've been so busy um, that I've been doing more like one a month, but I, I'll probably pick up the pace on that as I get my schedule. I also, I went through season the last few months of some really, really crippling headaches and that got a little scary for a while, but we figured out, I think what's going on. And so I'm getting that under control a little bit, but that kind of threw me for a loop, but yeah, thinkchristian.net. But I also link to that from my Twitter. And so when I post something there, I, I link to it from Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else. But yeah, that's a pretty great site. They have a lot of good film and TV and book and uh, music coverage, not of particularly Christian content, but just how do we think about everything going on in the culture from a Christian perspective? So it's, it's, um, I'll be doing an article about record store day coming up and how record store day is kind of like church. (laughs) So (laughs) it is for a lot of people for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've always appreciated uh, your writing Every time I see you post something, I I try to make a point to read it. And and I love your book. And gosh, we didn't even talk about your band, The Wayside Music. So listeners, go check it out. Um, Husband and wife duo, (laughs) really, really cool stuff. Yeah, it's it's been great getting to know you over the years. I appreciate you sharing your stories tonight. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. There you have it. If you enjoyed this, subscribe and share with your friends. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Collected Clan. We'll be there. Never miss an episode. Be sure to visit the show notes for this episode at www.collectedclan.com slash John J. Thompson for full information about his book, including a free first chapter, as well as links to John to learn more about what he's doing. And I'd love to hear from you about any specific follow-ups to this or previous conversations that you'd like to hear. Email me at collectedclan at gmail.com. And a big shout out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodisiac Lounge Volume 1. Check out more of their music at worldwidegroovecorporation.com. Thank you again for listening. Now go be you. <laughs>